We will now have a reading from God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas. Uh, Christmas is is here, right? It's this week. So Merry Christmas. Um, I do want to uh, throw in a quick plug for our end of the year offering. Uh, it's gone out in our newsletter. We mentioned it last week. Uh, remind you, uh, we always give away at least 10% of everything the church receives to to generosity, um, to fund the work of the gospel, to meet people in their need. Uh, with this special offering, we're giving away 90% of it, uh, and then we're going to use 10% of it for local benevolence needs. Um, 90% of whatever comes into this special offering will be going to two specific groups that we've partnered with in the past uh, that are serving two areas that have been uniquely impacted over this period of the pandemic. We are going to be giving to uh, WGO, um, World Gospel Outreach. They uh, are working in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Uh, Honduras is, or Tegucigalpa specifically, is an area uh, that's impoverished and was uniquely impacted by the pandemic to begin with. And then the area has been hammered with a couple of hurricanes. Um, and as a result, um, it, people in poverty are always hit um, with greater suffering in times of general suffering. And uh, this community has been uniquely and powerfully hit by it. And these folks are on the ground daily serving to make sure that people's basic needs are being met. And they're doing it through the local churches of their community so that people are also hearing the good news of the gospel. And so we'll be giving to WGO to assist them as they continue their life-saving work. And we will also be partnering with the Restore Network. Uh, the Restore Network uh, partners with the... Um, uh, the foster care system uh, of Southern Illinois and um, uh, restore uh, recruits, trains, supports uh, Christian families to become part of the foster care system so that children in crisis can have a safe place to land and that parents who are uh, entering into that difficult work can be trained and supported in it. Um, and uh, over the course of the pandemic, um, issues surrounding 
unrest in the home have only been worsened. And, um, and we're seeing more and more children in, in an already overloaded uh, system, a broken system, just in need. And uh, the Restore Network is doing a phenomenal job. And if we can expand that job, uh, we are blessing children. And as we bless children, we are um, meeting people in their point of need with a practical um, expression of the gospel. And so that's where our giving is going to go. So I'm going to encourage you to pray about how you can contribute and be involved in our end-of-the-year offering. You can give by mailing a church check to the church. Just make sure that you label it clearly. You can give online. If you go to our website, one of the drop-down menus is a special offering or end-of-the-year mission offering, one of those things, but you'll you'll be able to recognize it once you get there. Okay? I do want to remind you that uh, you can also give through the Church Center app. I hit these every week because we have new people joining us, and as they do, I want to make sure they know how to plug in, right? On the Church Center app, <clears throat> just one thing, we, we are continually working to improve these tools. And um, one thing that's very cool is, is how incredibly easy it is right now to actually access the bulletin for this morning. Uh, if you just open the Church Center app right there at the bottom, uh, there is a, a bulletin button, right? You click that and, and you have the title and the scripture passage and the quotes that, that we've laid out for the bulletin this week. And so um, just want to make sure you know that that resource is available and that you are accessing it. I would also encourage, if you haven't yet, to text Yeah Buddy to 618-266-3210. This is uh, our quickest, most effective way of communicating with you during this season. Of course, we send out emails and we make announcements, but but texts by and far are the most effective way of actually getting information into your hands quickly. All right. Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. Uh, we are in the last Sunday of our Advent series, right? Once Christmas comes, Advent is, is over until, until next year in some ways. Um, today we lit the second to last candle, uh, the candle for love. We will be lighting the final candle uh, on Christmas Eve. And I would encourage you to join us on Christmas Eve. We will have space uh, here for for um, socially distanced worship and gathering at 5 o'clock uh, on Christmas Eve. We will also be live streaming, and so you will be able to join us uh, online. So please plan to do so. We have, we've been looking at progressively the virtues, the themes of Advent, right? Hope, peace, joy, and now this morning... Uh, love, right? And to do that, today we're going to be spending our time in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it is another un- unusual Advent passage, I think, um, even though it is absolutely an Advent passage, as, as I think you'll, you'll see. Many people, when they think of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, they just think of weddings. Uh, like, like this is some kind of, you know, s- sacred wedding text or something, um, because I think like most, most weddings, it seems to be filled with idealistic and somewhat unrealistic descriptions of love. Um, it is, it, it comes across like, like one of those coffee, you know, cup things, mushy and, and, uh, maybe a little hallmarky. Um, it is anything but that. Um, it is far from mushy and unrealistic as it could be. It is deeply challenging and bluntly practical. Uh, and the passage actually has absolutely nothing to do with weddings or hallmark uh, or romantic love. 
Um, that's not what the passage is about at all. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 lands between 12 and 14. There's a revelation for you, right? A little number, number teaching here. Um, but, but 12 and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. This, this is a passage about the Corinthians misusing, um, their, their spiritual gifts, right? They, they had been given these spiritual gifts Right? When they became believers, the Spirit of God equipped them with a unique spiritual gift to be used for the blessing of the body. But, but Corinth was anything but a healthy church, right? They, they were, they were cliquish and class-ish and, and self-ish, right? Um, they were cliquish because they, they, they gathered around central dynamic personalities, right? I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am, right? They, they, they created these internal tribes of identity, right? I, I, I am of, of this group of Twitter. I am of that group of Twitter. I follow these people on Facebook. I read these people in social media, right? They were cliquish. They were classish, right? There, there were special classes of people that, that they valued more highly than others. Right, whether they were wealthy or famous, right? In Corinth, it was a Corinth was a very, very wealthy cosmopolitan city, and and it was seen as a tremendous honor for someone of great wealth to to um, to be with you because they were just seen as blessed by God and and unique, right? There was there's a reason they were super wealthy, right? There was obviously a higher class of human being, um, and and we see that reflected in the church in Corinth. Uh, and they were selfish, right? At the end of the day, they were self-centered. They, they were about their own ambitions, about their own glory, about how they were seen and how they were perceived, they, how they were treated, what special, what special experiences they could have, right? Whether or not others were having the same things or the same experiences or the same blessings they were having, right? They were cliquish, classish, and, and selfish. And as a result, I want you to catch this. They were comparative and competitive. You catching that? They were always comparing because they were always competitive, right? Does that sound familiar? That's like the American way, right? That's the whole, like, like studies have shown that people are more satisfied with their house if they perceive their house as somehow better than their neighbor's. Right? We're more satisfied with our cars. Not if they get us to point A to point B, which is its function. It, it, no, if somehow our cars communicate some sort of status, right? Think about the number of guys who have had like identity crises when they got minivans instead of SUVs. You know what I'm saying? Like that has nothing to do with functionality. That has everything to do with comparison and competition. Uh, the Corinthians were comparative and competitive, and they found their worth in pride. They found their significance in comparison and self-glory, that somehow I am better than someone else because of this experience or this gift or this possession or whatever it is, right? So, so Paul explains to the Corinthians, he's like, man, first of all, um, y'all, this is, this is just dumb, okay? In 1 Corinthians 12, he's like, biblically, Y'all are one body, right? You're all parts of the same body. You're all part of the body of Christ. And you have different functions in the body. And how incredibly silly would it be if one part of the body started boasting over another part of the body? Right? If the eyeball was like, well, I'm not a hand. That makes me better. Because what would be the hand without the eyeball? Or, or a toe boasting over a pinky? Or a, I mean, it is just lunacy that we would find our value in comparing and competition, right? And, and, and when he gets to the end of 12, 
he says this. He's like, look, y'all, not only is it lunacy to try to find your value through comparison, he gets into verse 31 and he says, you know what? I'm going to show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way of perceiving life. A more excellent way of engaging reality. A more excellent way of actually, of actually seeing your place in this world, right? Not only is it nonsensical to be comparative and competitive, it is plain foolish because it misses the whole point of your existence, right? The point of the gifts, the point of our ability to do things and think things and, 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 and the point of everything, Paul says, is love. Love. And if you miss love, you miss everything else with it. Comparison and competition are all about greed. It's all about self-glory and self-love and, and, and self-focus, right? And as a result, it cuts us off from love because love is about the generous flow of grace toward others. I have richly received, so I richly give. The more I love, the more I give. The more I love, the more content I am being an invisible part of the blessing of others. The more I love, the more I take joy purely in their flourishing in life. And as we're going to see, this argument is anchored in Advent hope. Um, As we have progressed through the weeks, we've been exploring how the virtues related with Advent are, are related to each other, right? Um, we rebelled against God at the beginning of the human story and we messed everything up. We rejected resting in the love of God and instead basically set ourselves out to compete with God. Instead of being content, being created in the image of God, we declared that we would be like God, right? We didn't, we didn't want to rest in the gifts that he had given us. We wanted to compete by using those gifts to make ourselves um, equal to him. Instead of being... Uh, uh, content, we wanted to be little gods, providing for our own security, defining and chasing our own pleasures, marking the boundaries of our own glory. And, and as a result, we made quite a mess, right? And our rebellion against God, uh, we lost all that we had and actually lost all hope of ever getting it back. Because in our rebellion against God, we made ourselves unable to actually enter into the presence of God. And everything we long for flows from the very heart of God. So as a result, not only were we disqualified and we lost it, we were disqualified from even the hope of ever regaining it. We were cut off. But God committed himself to entering our mess to redeem and restore us. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel message. In love, God became man. Lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we deserved to die as our substitute, and as our hero. Having, having performed perfectly, having perfectly imaged God, carried out the job description of humanity, he then went to the cross and died a death he himself did not deserve. But we did. He took our judgment so that we could get his blessing. And then he rose again in victory. right? His victory, which is now our victory by faith. Because when we believe in Christ, the grace of God is extended to us. right? Our record is given to Christ on the cross and his resurrection record is given to us by faith. I am now covered in the very righteousness of God because of my faith in Christ. 
It's not about what I do for God, it's about what He's done for me. And I rest now simply in His performance for me, not in my failure before Him. I come before Him, my shame removed and my guilt expunged. And I am covered in the very righteousness of Christ. And all of that is based on the work of Christ extended to me in a promise. The promise of the gospel. Believe in me and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be justified. You will be redeemed, right? If you trust in me, you'll get everything from me. If you once again rest in my promise, my goodness, my provision, if you have faith, you'll be redeemed. And when we believe the promise, it's like roots going down into the love of God, right? The first advent was the practical expression of the love of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that we might not perish, right? But that we might have life through him, right? If we, for those who believe in him, we might have life. He didn't come into the world to judge the world, but so that through him the world might have life. That, that first advent, man, is the promise of love. It's the work of love. It is the work of redemption. And as we, as we dig in by faith to that promise, it's like roots going down into the rich soil of the love of God. And the more robust our faith, the more robust our experience of the love of God. Right? The more we simply trust. The more we simply respond to God's love, the more we experience the profound goodness of that love. The more it nourishes us and strengthens us and gives us a firm foundation. And so the Christian life is in many ways that, that process of deepening the roots of our faith, of digging deeper and deeper and deeper into this profound love so that that love can feed us and support us and encourage us, right? The roots are our faith. The vine that grows out of it, whether it's a, a little vine or a stalk or, or a trunk of a tree, uh, what grows out of it is our hope, right? Our faith digs into the love of God, and the more it does, the more we reach out in hope and in yearning for the fulfillment of that love. Right? We reach back to experience the love of God, which awakens within us this painful yearning for the fulfillment of that love. Right? Our faith looks back, our hope looks forward, because as we dig our roots into that promise, the more we yearn for the fulfillment of that promise, the more we long for the fulfillment of that love. And the byproduct of that process is our personal peace, our experience of personal peace, because Christ uh, earned for us, won for us, peace with God. We get to experience the peace of God, right? And joy, peace and joy are the byproducts that come from a robust faith growing in a strong hope, right? Where's love in this picture? Well, love obviously is the soil in which our roots dig, but love is also the sun to which our hope yearns. Love is the entire environment in which this, this gospel transformative experience exists. It was the love of God initiated to us in Christ that awakens our desires for the fulfillment of love and the return of Christ. It's love. It's all love. 
Love is the soil from which we grow. Love is the sun to which we yearn. Love is what gives birth to our faith. Love is what nurtures our hope. Love is what started the process. And love will be what brings its consummation. See, love isn't just one virtue among many virtues. She is the queen of all virtues. Their beginning and their end. Love is the point of it all. Not surprisingly, because God is love. And this is Paul's point, verses 1 through 3. Right? So I'm just going to hit some of these, these things quickly. We've got to move quickly through the text. But I want to hit this, right? Because in verses 13, uh, chapter 13, 1 through, through 3, he's like, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, and he's, he's referencing uh, the spiritual gift of being able to speak in multiple languages or even angelic tongues in prayer or whatever it is, right? But I have not love? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But I have not love. I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Why would somebody give up their body to be burned if they weren't motivated by love? <laughs> that one always like, I'm like, holy cow. What Paul is saying here is that somebody would even become a martyr. And not be motivated by love. Like there's a way to do all of this stuff for all the wrong motives. There's a way to do all of this stuff in a way that not only robs it of its meaning, but robs me of its reward. Why would somebody give up their life in martyrdom? I'll give you one simple answer. Comparison and competition. Somehow... They marked that as some greater glory. It was going to make them better than somebody else. It was going to establish their name and give them some measure of glory that others didn't have. They were even willing to die for comparison and competition. False love. We're addicted to it, competing and comparing and and um, we create sliding scales that make us look good in comparison. And all of these sliding scales are foolishness. They're all foolishness, right? We're like middle school kids who create arbitrary rules in the playground for who's in and who's out. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the, little, the middle school kid comes in crying and, 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 and you're like, what's, what's going on, man? What's wrong? It happened all the time in ed, when I was in education. You're like, what, what happened? Oh, the kids are making fun of me. Why? Because of my shoes. Oh, why? They're like name brand. Yeah, but they're last year's model. And, and they're being mocked, right? And, and if it isn't their shoes, it's the length of their hair. If it's not the length of their hair, it's, it's how their shirt fits. And if it's not how their shirt fits, it's, it's the shape of their face. It's, we are addicted to finding arbitrary ways to make ourselves feel superior to others. Now, middle schoolers are just more overt about it. But we don't outgrow it just because we outgrow middle school. We just get more sophisticated in the process and more insane in its application. 
These paradigms of comparative worth and competitive valuing are foolish and they are fictitious. Like people in an insane asylum comparing the pile of rocks hidden underneath their bed and establishing their worth compared to others based on these fictitious measurements, thinking they are in fact true wealth, we also are foolish and insane. Y'all, there's only one measure of worth. There is only one measure of glory. There is only one true treasure. And we know this. It's love. We live between the two great advents of love. Love broke into the world when God became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And we're waiting for the second advent when that Emmanuel, God with us, comes back physically to be with us. We live between the two advents of love. The first time he broke in to clean up our mess and the second time he's coming to restore the goodness. And in between, during this time, the great temptation for us is to get deceived into thinking that these false paradigms of worth and wealth are real. That these deceptive and seductive paradigms are what actually establish our value. We forget what's real. Take a look down at at verse 8. I love this. Love never ends. (laughs) Love never ends. What a profound statement. It's eternal in its nature. It doesn't have a beginning and it will never have an ending. Why? Because it's rooted in the very character of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who doesn't just have an idea of love or a concept of love, but is the actual experience of love for all of eternity. God is love. He is the source of all that is worthy and the source of all that is valuable. And he created us in his image that we might feast on that value. Love never ends. Man, we live in an age of deceptive permanence where we think that this stuff around us, these temporary struggles, these temporary values, these temporary experiences are so important when they're just going to pass away. Take a look at verses 9 to 10. I'll finish verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. I love this. As for knowledge, it will pass away, right? If you think I'm just talking about like temporary gifts, man, even all this stuff you think you know, you only know in part, even that's going to pass away in the fulfillment of knowledge, right? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. During this age, um, it's all temporary, right? The end of verse 10, but, but when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. He's like, don't forget where you are in the story, y'all. The great redemptive story of God. Don't, don't forget where you are in it. Don't lose sight of what is real and permanent, of what is true in its value and its worth. All of this, everything you see around you, man, it's partial. It's all temporary. 
And when the perfect comes, the partial is going to pass away. Now, verse 10 is, is an interesting verse, right? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I first became a believer, I was taught um, that, that this was in the context talking about the temporary, what were called the temporary spiritual gifts of the early church. So in other words, prophecy, tongues, any miraculous gift that makes people nervous, basically. The, the argument is they all went away um, because they were temporary and partial. And when the perfect comes, they will all disappear. The word for perfect here is the Greek word telos, uh, which means end or completion, right? Not morally perfect necessarily, but but that which is whole and perfect in its completeness. And they would argue that, that what Paul was arguing here is that when the complete canon of Scripture was finally written and delivered to the church, all the partial gifts of knowledge would pass away. So prophecy would pass away, tongues would pass away, all these, all these um, uh, what we call charismatic gifts as if there was any other kind of gift. They're all charismatic, by the way. It just simply means gift of grace, right? These things would pass away when, when the Scripture arrive because they would no longer be needed. And, and, and you can probably tell, I, I, through my studies, eventually rejected that argument. I, it just doesn't make any sense in the text for me, right? Paul isn't making an argument against gifts. He's making an argument for love. He's not arguing about the canon of Scripture. He, he's talking about not the perfect written word of God, but when the arrival of the perfect living Son of God, the living word, arrives. What he's talking about is when the age to come dawns and swallows the age that is, all that is temporary will be swallowed in what is permanent. I mean, follow the argument in the next couple of verses, right? In verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Right, That verse never made sense to me until I realized what he was saying. is meant, y'all need to stop living as if what is, is all there is. Right? That's childish. Stop living as if what is, is, is all there is. Right? Stop living your Christian life as if Christ weren't returning. All this stuff you get so hung up about, you take pride in, you feel superior toward others about, it puffs you up, it makes you feel, all this stuff that gives you anxiety and, and fear. Man, it's all temporary. Stop being like those middle school kids who make up rules and then find their pride stoked or their shame stoked or, or a quieting of their anxiety by, by if I just, man, just don't be like a child. Right? We live in a moment, a moment of God's outworking in redemptive history. How foolish a mistake it would be to think that what is, is all there is. That the things that seem so temporarily important now are in fact of any... Keep your perspective. Right? Keep your perspective that you are between the two advents and everything in you is yearning. Not for some temporary fulfillment now, but the complete fulfillment that is to come. Right? Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That, that part never made sense to me when, it was a, when they taught that it was about the canon. Right? No, it's about Jesus. Right? Now we see in a mirror dimly. 
Mirrors, especially in the ancient world, were dim because they weren't reflective like ours. They were more like polished pieces of metal where you could kind of get a semblance of yourself when you looked at it, right? Um, and what he's saying is, is right now, when, when we look um, at the world, we look at ourselves, we look at our environments, we look at our families, we, we look at our country, we look at our struggles, we look at life, man, everything is dim. It's hard to see anything clearly right now. It's all cloudy. But there's going to come a point at which the light is turned on and we will see face to face. Now I know in part, he says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Who am I known fully by? Well, Jesus, my Savior. He's talking about the moment at which we get to actually come into the presence of the living word. Not just the written word, which points us to him, right? But but we come into the presence of the living word. What happens when we come into the presence of the living word? Do we know everything? No. We know everything we need to know. We know we are loved. The deepest, most unsettling questions of our soul are finally answered. The struggle of being able to understand how it all fits together all comes together, not because he's given us answers, but because he's given us himself. Because when he gives us himself, all the other questions fall away. When we come into the presence of love himself, to be fully loved, to know even as we are already known, Right? It's not that his experience of us changes, it's our experience of him. When we come to that moment, everything else will fall away. And all that seems so important, and all that seems so temporarily, and we're just going to see it for what it was. Dim shadows of partiality, yearning for the fulfillment in the very presence of our God, the source of love. We will know even as we are known. Right? This is the knowledge of consummation. This is not the knowledge of, of now I finally know all the right things. Right? Now I can finally prove that my theological positions are better than somebody else's. Right? All that stuff's going to fall away. All the silly posturing, all the silly pride, all the silly, man, it's just going to fall away. Because we're simply going to be feasting on the presence of love. So we're to live in the light of this reality that we live between the advents of love. We are to reject the insane paradigms of false hope and false glory and false value and false security and live in the true power of love. So this is what makes verses 4 through 7 so rational and so practical. Right? The heart of this chapter. They are not idealistic. They're not hallmark mushy talk. They are simply describing what it looks like to live in light of our Advent hope. Right? Verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Why? Because we're not comparing and competing. I'm not... I'm not looking to, to surround myself with people who make me feel good about me. 
I don't get annoyed with you because you challenge me in ways I don't want to be challenged. I don't get exhausted with you because you make me feel inadequate. I, I don't, I don't push you away because somehow you don't make me feel about me the way I want to feel. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Why? Because I don't find my value in comparison to you. I don't need to envy who you are or what you have, and I don't need to boast about my perceived strengths that come out of my fictitious paradigms. It is not arrogant or rude. Why? Because love is humble. Humility is strength, right? Love puffs, or pride puffs up, but love edifies. Man, love, love allows me to see your strengths and glory in them, not be threatened by them. Love allows me to, to see the differences and, and take glory in them instead of feeling threatened by them. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It finds its joy in the joy of others. It is not irritable or resentful. Why? Because it delights in the good of others. Right? Instead of thinking about what I have in terms of keeping what I have and getting more. A paradigm of selfishness. I, I am freed into the generous flow of the grace of God. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't even, it even takes joy in the exposing of my own wrongdoing, right? But rejoices in the truth. Even when that truth is costly to me. Because I don't find my value in being right. I don't find my value in being better. I don't, right? Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, that is blunt and that is practical and that is, that is challenging. Think about a world without comparison. A world where value isn't established through competition. A world where, where worth and value and glory and security aren't founded on winning or measuring. Right? As if the one who dies with the most toys wins or he who exists the longest before they die wins, right? He who is loved wins. And he who is freed to love wins. They are the most secure. They are the richest. They are the most significant people on the face of the earth. They may be the most despised in this world. Our little middle school world where we have our fictitious paradigms of worth and value where we're running around making fun of people for things that we've made up because somehow we perceive them as making us superior to others. The people that are genuinely freed into love know the power of love, the significance of love, the value of love. Why? Because, because Christ, the despised one, the rejected one, the crucified one, is the one who is the one of greatest glory. Greatest significance. The one who found greatest security even in the path of self-sacrifice. 
Listen. The way of love seems like insanity because it asks everything of us, but the reality is it's when we reject love that we go insane. All you got to do is look at the flourishing of conspiracy theories in our culture today. Conspiracy theories flourish where love has died. Why? Because conspiracy theories thrive on looking at people and assuming the worst. Filling every gap with the absolute worst motivations, right? There's, there's an action and, and, and there's a gap between what we see and what we, we think may have happened, why it happened. And we fill that gap with every bad motivation, every wrong intention, every evil thought, every, right? Conspiracy theories thrive where love dies, right? We stop seeing people created in the image of God and we start seeing devils in the shape of humans. We stop trusting God that he's going to get it right and instead live in fear that we are getting it wrong. Listen, y'all, love isn't foolish. It refuses to let go of resurrection hope. Even in the face of an insane world. Love sees what could be, what will be, and instead of focusing on what is, sets its hope on what has been promised will be. Love rejects comparison and competition as a path to worth and to glory and security. Love rejects self-protection and other defeating as a path to perceived security. Love sees the best because the God who can redeem is in the business of redemption. It allows me to see broken people and still see the glory of God in the midst of the ruin. It allows me to hope. It allows me to endure. It allows me to to believe and bear. Because it rests not on some false hope of temporary pleasure or glory or security, but on the very promise of God. Because God has promised that He came not only to redeem, but he will come again to restore. Our chapter ends with one final profound thought in verse 13. Paul says, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. All right, faith, hope, love abide. In other words, these are real. In a world of fiction, these are are real. They abide. They continue. They exist, right? But even the greatest of these is love. Think about it. When Christ comes again, when we have the consummation of love, what happens to faith? Faith doesn't go away, right? But it changes. When Christ returns, faith becomes fidelity. The strength of love in relationship. It's not just trust in a promise. It is the living, abiding experience of trust in a person. Faith becomes fidelity. What happens to hope? When Christ returns, hope will be consummated in face-to-face fulfillment. Does that mean hope goes away? No, because something greater. A continual hoping and yearning for a greater experience of love that is ever met by an ever-increasing experience of love. Love. When Christ returns, love doesn't change. It just gets larger. 
When Christ returns, love never ends. It only grows in experience, in value, in power, in worth. Everything else will pass away. Your fame, your possessions, your economies, your politics, your record, your whatever, your knowledge, all the things that you think make you secure, significant, or worthy, but love, love never ends. It only grows. The greatest of these is love. Yeah, we live right now in light in between of the, these two advents, and we need to live in light of where we are in the story. Love made the promise, and love paid its price, and love will keep that promise to the end. And the love that came to pay that price will come again to fulfill that promise and bring us into the full blessing. Let's walk in that love. Let me close this in a word of prayer. We'll share communion together. Father, I thank you that you are love. That it is not something you do or even something you choose. It is the very essence of who you are. And because you are love, we were created for love. And even when we rebelled against you, even when we sought to compete with you, even when we sought to steal your glory and cover ourselves with it, you loved. And you loved so much, you gave. And in giving, you reawakened us to love. In giving us your son, you reawakened us to what it means to be loved. In paying the price for our sin, you invite us to rest in the gift of that love and have our hope reawakened in the fulfillment of that love. Lord, there's a lot going on in our worlds right now. Everything from holiday chaos to family struggles to our children who are supposed to be little angels, but often act like little devils. To election turmoil. Conversations we don't want to have to have with people we don't want to have to have them with. We have a lot of, a lot of trial in this world, Lord. A lot of struggle. Will you help us to keep our perspective in the middle of it? about what makes us truly secure, about what truly frees us into joy and peace, about what makes us truly significant, that we might operate from a place of security instead of for security, from a place of rest instead of for rest, from a place of being delighted in instead of continually striving to make ourselves worthy of being delighted in. Lord, will you awaken us to our Advent hope? 
and free us into that flow of love. Meet us and equip us that we might be rooted and grounded in your love. And this week, able to strongly move forward in the generosity of that love toward others. We pray this in the name of our hero, Jesus. Amen.